everybody. Just so glad that you're here this morning. want to say hello to many of you again, watching and listening online. Always want to include you, you who are in distance groups, all of you who are watching today because you are serving somewhere in our church. We just again want to thank you uh, for your service this morning. Well, it was Friday of this week and um, I had some time with my son. Uh, my wife was off somewhere and my daughters were at school and so my son and I were hanging out. It was a great day and it was just cool to do that. Uh, everything was great until I decided he had watched too much on the iPad. And I went over to Noah and said, Noah, uh, it's time to give me the iPad. He gave me a look, which was not so kind, and I took it from him. Well, at that moment, we moved from bliss in heaven to a very different place. And so, an outright temper tantrum, not a great experience. Uh, we moved beyond that. By the end of the day, there had been three different mega meltdowns. And so by the end of the day, it was just a tough day that started good, ended not so good. I put him in his bed and I said, Noah, are you sorry for the way you've asked, uh, been acting? And he said, you know, and I, I, was, t I was shocked. I didn't understand what was happening because I knew that at three years old, linguistically, he doesn't know the phrase, you know what's going to happen next. So I said to him again, Noah, are you sorry for how you've been acting? And he said, you know. And I suddenly realized, and I said to him, are you combining yes and no so you don't need to answer me? And he smiled. I was like, oh, oh my goodness. I said one last time, are you sorry for the way you've treated our family today? And he said, yes and no. And I was like, oh, Lord, give me patience. Uh, this is unbelievable. You know, he's inventing a lexicon. Here was what struck me by that moment, other than, again, parenting is so exciting. It's this. He didn't want to give me an answer. He did not want to make a decision. He wanted to admit that he was wrong and not wrong all at the same time. He wanted a fence. He, didn't, he wanted a way out. He didn't want to respond. So he invented an option that wasn't there. That is so like the human condition. You know is the answer for most of us, especially when it comes to spiritual things. And as we learned last week, and as we're going to hear again now for this last time, Jesus does not allow a you know answer at all when it comes to him. This is our last, as you found out today, last week in this amazing and life-changing series, if you've been listening, out of the Sermon on the Mount. As we've been learning, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, only three little chapters, is what the kingdom of God looks like in ordinary life. It's what the reign and rule of God looks like after you've accepted Jesus as Savior and King. For Jesus, this whole message has been an explicit outline of a normal Christian life. It's what authentic faith in Jesus produces over a lifetime, no matter, as we saw in the video, where you're called. 
And as I started the beginning of the series, let me say this to you again. If spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power to see the kingdom grow, and if spiritual disciplines are the guaranteed place of transformation as we get to walk with the king of the kingdom, then the Sermon on the Mount is the ethics, it's the lifestyle of those that already are members of the kingdom of heaven. See, what we have been walking through for this whole year is not Jesus imagining a different world that is impossible. Many of us that have read the Sermon on the Mount in history have read it and said, that's a nice idea, but that is impossible. Jesus says, no, no, this is not escapist. This is not fantasy. This is not utopian. This is not undoable. No, no, what I've been giving you that's us to the church. What we have been walking through together is possible, is expected. Actually, it's the grand reversal of the status quo. This is the breaking in of the new heavens and the new earth into the now. It is a foretaste of what's going to be permanent forever. Now, I want to say this this morning, and it's important. Each generation of Christians have been called to this same place. For 2,000 years, each generation of Christians have been called to this exact same place for this exact same purpose in the different times and cultures they've lived in. This unites us as a global movement. Christians here and Christians in China, Christians in Syria, Christians in America, Christians in Brazil, no matter where Christians are, we are all called to this place. This phrase, your kingdom come, is not just sort of a cool idea for a year theme. No, no, it is the cry of our hearts that God's kingdom that has been promised and is real would happen among us. And Jesus promises us that his kingdom, which is found first in the heart, is doable, possible, and oh, by the way, it is expected for his new people. So before we hear the last words of the Sermon on the Mount, before we hear the last words of Jesus, I want all of us to go back to the very first verse at the Sermon on the Mount. Because without reminding ourselves of the first verse, the last group will be misinterpreted. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. We were here, 5-3 five, five, that is. We were here so long ago. It starts like this, do you remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus starts the conversation about how you get into the kingdom before he deals with anything else. Remember, I stopped this and said, well, what does blessed really mean? Because it's a churchy word. Oh, I'm so blessed. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean happiness? Well, it, it can mean happiness, but it can't be reduced to happy itself. It, it goes mo so much deeper than this. See, it's interesting. In the Bible, the Bible says that of all of creation, human beings are the ones that can exclusively bless God, and God blesses them. So what does blessed mean beyond happy? Well, it actually means to find approval. Approved are the poor in spirit. See, when you are blessing God, you are approving of God, you are accepting of God, you are saying yes to all that God is and all that God is up to. And when God blesses you, he says you are now approved, you are now accepted. See, there's an official legal side to blessing and a relational disposition to blessing. Now, the Bible uses the word blessing when it talks about forgiveness of sin and eternity. Blessed is the person whose transgressions have not been held against them. 
When God says, I choose out of mercy not to hold what you've done against me, that is a legal declaration. It's an official thing. Is there anything more powerful than God blessing us? Is there anything more absolute substantive in your life, especially for self-image, when God says, I now call you blessed? See, when you bless God, you approve of Him. When God blesses us, He makes us right. But blessing is also a promise of personal presence. It's relational. So, blessing means right standing. Blessing means right relationship. Blessing means right presence, which produces a right life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I had to deal with this right at the beginning. Is this saying that blessed are those who are financially broken? Is this saying that only those who are poor in this world, who have nothing, who are going through everything none of us would ever want to go through, they're the ones who get the kingdom of heaven? No. This statement is blessed are those who are poor in spirit. This is a condition that is spiritual, not physical or economic. Blessed are those who are lowly. Blessed are those who are humble. Those who truly know their true condition before God himself. See, Jesus is actually, when he starts the Sermon on the Mount, he has the Old Testament filling his mind as he's speaking. He's actually quoting all sorts of sections out of the Old Testament. One of the ones that is absolutely in the mind of Jesus when he uttered these words is Isaiah 66.2. These are the ones I look on with favor, God says. Those who are humble and contrite, poor in spirit, and who tremble at my word. See, Jesus' first words, as we started so many weeks ago, were powerful and penetrating and all-consuming because one verse defines every single person's spiritual bankruptcy before God. The most religious, the most unreligious, the most devoted, the most uncommitted. All of us, this is our true condition before our Creator. We are poor, lowly, weak, deficient, reduced, pitiable, sinful, or as Paul says, spiritually dead. Now, only when a person knows that this is their condition, only when a person admits that this is their trouble without and before God, only then do they suddenly truly become poor in spirit. It's the ancient cry in the church, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. This is saying when a person just admits they have a deep need and longing before God, that is when you enter the kingdom of God. By the way, this isn't about self-hatred. This is not about saying you have no value. This is not spitting on you or saying you're a worm. No, no. This is an honest acknowledgement of the truth. We all need our creator. It is a declaration of personal, moral, and relational unworthiness. And this should make sense to us, especially we who have had the privilege of knowing and having the Bible for long years in our life. When Jesus came on the scene at 30, he stood up and he quoted the prophet Isaiah. And when he stood up, he gave his mission and vision statement. And he did it in Luke. And this is the first words he said in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Only when we see our great sin... 
Only when we admit we cannot overcome death, we cannot escape death, we cannot deal with the demonic, we cannot deal with sin, only when we admit that we do not have the ability to change the human heart and condition, only then do you enter the kingdom of God. Only when a human humbles himself and cries out, save me, Jesus, that is when you enter the kingdom of heaven. And the great power of this verse, like I preached the first week, is this verse is the great leveler. It puts all people on the same ground. Rich and poor people and everyone in between has to come to this position. It's what that old hymn writer wrote that I quoted so long ago. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to your fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. See, that is why salvation, that is why becoming a Christian, that is why the Christian message, which is good news, is so deeply offensive to the most moral person and the most self-exploring person on earth because it declares that another person must come and make you right. It's what Paul said in these words in Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is never from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so nobody can boast. When you cry this out, you enter the kingdom of heaven. When you cry this out, you will be made whole again. When you cry this out, God becomes your father. When you cry this out again, salvation comes to your house. When you cry this out, your sins are removed. When you cry this out, eternal life is given to you. When you cry this out, you will never be alone again. When you cry this out, you become fully human because you're restored back with your creator and you get to know him and enjoy him forever. See, this is how love wins in a very messed up world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There was a huge debate at a university about the uniqueness of Christianity. And all these professors were meeting and gathering and arguing. And one said, it's the incarnation that God became a man. And they said, no other religions have views of that. Someone else said, no, it's the resurrection of the dead. And some other people said, no, 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 that, that's not it either. And then suddenly that famous person, many of us have read C.S. Lewis, walked in the room, true story. And he sat down and looked around and classic line, he says, what's all the rumpus about? Can't you hear him saying that? And some people looked at him and said, well, we're arguing about what the uniqueness of Christianity is. And he smiled and said, oh, that's easy. True story. It's grace. And the room went silent. See, this is what is so profound about our movement. Covenant keeping doesn't get you in. Commandment keeping doesn't keep you in. Church going doesn't keep you in. None of this gets you in the door in the first place. It is an exclusive encounter when you become poor in spirit and you meet the one that God has sent. It is grace, 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 grace. Now with that in our minds one last time, the end of the Sermon on the Mount will now make very strong sense. See, from beginning to end, we miss the scandal sometimes of this. But from the beginning to the end, Jesus has been contradicting all the different Jewish communities' hopes and dreams as he gave this. Many of them thought that the kingdom of God would be political. Many of them had been taught that a Messiah king would come and would throw out the Romans. Others had this great hope that the Messiah would come and not only remove the Romans, but would restore temple worship to the time of Solomon. Solomon. 
But in one verse, Jesus says the Pharisees are wrong and the zealots who are involved in guerrilla terrorist warfare are wrong and the Sadducee politicians are wrong and the crowd is wrong and even his own disciples are wrong. He undoes so much religious, political, and military hopes, aspirations, and dreams. He comes and says the kingdom of God is not found where you think it is. It it is found in the human heart first and it is found when you meet me by faith alone through grace alone because I'm the narrow gate so now Jesus comes to the end of this the most famous sermon by the way in history and he ends by moving from where we were last week talking about remember two gates two paths two groups And he chooses to end with one last image, one last contrast to see who's part of the kingdom of God and who's not part of the kingdom of God. He chooses the image of two homes. Now, as we're about to see, these two homes, these two groups of people look exactly the same. Both are part of the church community. Both are part of the community of faith. Both have sat under the word of God. Both seem to want the kingdom come. Both actually seem part of the kingdom. It'd be like me saying, both of them go to church. Both of them listen to podcasts that are Christian. Both of them listen to to Hillsong all the time. Both of them do connect groups. One of them knows Jesus and one of them doesn't. So Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount Jesus ends his kingdom manifesto. Jesus ends the most famous sermon in all of human history with the image of two houses that look the same, are decorated the same. If you walked in, you couldn't tell the difference. But he says one of the builders is wise and the other person is a fool. And this is what he says in Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. Okay, just stop for a second. Okay, everyone who's heard the Sermon on the Mount, that's all of us. He says, everyone to the original audience, you've just heard what I said. So everyone who's heard these words of mine, and then he says, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. If you start singing a song from old church, I'm going to hurt you. Don't do that. None of this. Okay, now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. We broke out in my connect group last night with that song. Okay, so he says, look, I have shown you how to enter the kingdom of God. I've shown you it's not by what you do. He says, but if you've really entered the kingdom of God, then all that I have shared with you, you'll begin to put into practice. You will be like a person when you build a house that you will dig as far down as you can to find bedrock. And you will put the foundation of the house on that rock. And oh, by the way, what's the rock? My words are the rock. My commands are the rock. This whole sermon is the bedrock. Actually, I'm the rock. And then he says, here's what's going to happen. The rain will come down. The streams will rise. The winds will blow and beat against that house. Yet it will not fall because its foundation is on the rock. When all the trials of life come, and oh, they will come. Remember Jesus' great promise, no one quotes. In this world you will have many troubles. When all the stuff happens and hits the fan. And actually, something even more. When at the end of time, you personally face God, you will not fall because of me. Did you catch that? See, every other movement says, you will not fall because of you. 
Because you're moral, religious, kind, exploring, educated, sexually diverse, fill in the blank. Jesus says, your house will not crash because it is built upon me and my word. We all go, okay, that sounds great. And then Jesus just says one little word, but. But. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Now, I found this out this week. I didn't know this. The Greek word for fool is where we get our word moron from. Isn't that interesting? Such an interesting So, So this reads, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is a moron. Very, very Canadian. Very kind, right? Now, this is what he says. You are a fool. You are a fool if you hear me and do nothing. You are a fool before God if you do not become poor in spirit. You're a fool if you claim that I am who I actually am and there's no evidence of me in your life. Your house, that is your life, is on sand. It shifts, it's never stable, it's not permanent at all. By the way, as he said time and time again, right? This life isn't it. This life is important. This life should be enjoyed. This life is to be involved. We're supposed to appreciate and be involved even in the redemption of this world. But there is more to come. And Jesus says, the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When I was with my kids a few weeks ago down in the Caribbean as we were hanging out, uh, of course, when you're in the Caribbean with little kids, you make sandcastles. And you, you know about sandcastles. Some of them are most elaborate and amazing. Some of them are, well, we'll call them primitive. But they're all sandcastles. I always love building sandcastles with my kid right near the water to see how far, we can get, how far we can build it before it gets destroyed. But you know what happens with a sandcastle. You know it. You can work for hours or, or, or just minutes, but it just takes one large wave and it's all gone. Jesus says that many people's lives is like a sandcastle that is unbelievably beautiful and has spent their whole life, but one wave is going to wipe it out. Now, the storm that Jesus is referring to is now and not yet. The storm of life is what we've referred to. And let's just be honest. We know this in this church. Human beings live in a broken world, and so we have all sorts of storms in our lives. Sorrow, poverty, great disappointment with each other. We all face death. There's sin. There's living in hospitals. There's news, family struggles, jobs, emotional, mental, physical sickness, war, terrorism, getting old, the nearness of the demonic. The list goes on and on. And yet, though those are real struggles that test the quality of faith, actually, there's something a little bit more terrifying happening here. Because Jesus, as he's preaching, has in his mind the Old Testament. And every time a storm is connected to the end, it's always referring to judgment. This is how Jesus' best friend, after he encountered the risen Jesus in the book of Revelation, wrote about judgment like this in Revelation 20.12. And he says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. 
See, Jesus says what we do here has eternal consequence. John Lennon's most brilliant and famous cry, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only the sky, is not true. See, judgment for even Jesus is God ratifying and underlying and agreeing with the relationship we choose to have with him in this life. If we want the kingdom of God now, in part, we can't wait to get to the kingdom of God, what's to come. If we want Jesus now, we've talked about homesickness. If we're already in love with Jesus here and we've never seen him, oh, how many of us cannot wait to see Jesus because he's the love of our life. If you don't want Jesus now, you don't want his father's kingdom. If you don't want Jesus now, you will not want him then. So many even people say, oh, I want heaven. And they never mention Jesus. Oh, I want the golf course. I want to fish the rest of my life for eternity. And I go, but where's Jesus in the picture? I don't care about, well, I don't care about golf courses, but whatever your poison is, I'm saying at the end of time, I want to go to the new heavens and the new earth because I can't wait to see Jesus. And he's saying, if you want me here, oh, you'll want me there. If you don't want me here, you won't want me there. And Jesus says, the evidence is lordship. The evidence is lordship. See, heaven and hell, like I've preached so many times, are not just about punishment and reward. They're actually just agreement. I love C.K. Chesterton's famous quote, hell is the greatest compliment God has ever paid to the dignity of human freedom. So Jesus comes along at the end of his sermon, and he says these words. What will you do with me? And oh, by the way, what will you do with what I've said? What will you do with me? And what will you do with what I've said? John Stott said these words. He says, the truth on which Jesus is insisting in these final paragraphs of the sermon is not just intellectual knowledge about Jesus or a verbal profession. Those things are important, but they're never a substitute for obedience. The question is, the uncomfortable question is, not whether we say nice things or polite things or right things or enthusiastic things to or about Jesus, but whether we hear his word and do something. Other people hear Jesus' word their whole life. They listen, they study, they ponder, they memorize until their minds are stuffed with teaching. But whether we do what it says and do what we know is the real question before us. See, what Jesus is stressing is those who have really met him, those who hear the gospel and profess faith will always obey him, expressing their faith in works. So Jesus says, what are you doing with me? And what are you doing with my words? For if you actually believe what I claim about myself and you've actually embraced who I am, then over a lifetime, the evidence of that love relationship will show up. But actually, that brings us to a very significant point at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the last two verses in the Sermon on the Mount, are they're not by Jesus. They're commentary by Matthew on the crowd's reaction to Jesus. And they have to do with one thing, authority. I love one man named Theodore Parker. I love his raw honesty when he said, oh, I believe he said Jesus Christ taught an eternal punishment, for example. I just don't accept his authority. You ever thought about authority before? We live in a culture of experts, right? I I can turn my car on and off and put on gas, and then I'm done. 
Anything beyond that, I need help. I need an expert. I am the least handy person on earth. Light bulbs are a challenge. I need an expert beyond that. We live in a culture where we continually look for experts to help us do right things. And expertise or authority is based on three things. Age, you've lived a long time so you're wise. Education or experience. We look for people who are wise, who have done this for and we sit with them because we want to know. Or we go to people who have PhDs or are doctors or experts in their area because we need to understand because we don't understand. Or they've had vast experience doing something. Now, it's interesting. Whether we think about this or not, when you go to an expert with authority, you check out if they have authority. And if you think they do, you put yourself underneath them as they say something or as they act. Now, here's what's absolutely interesting about Jesus. Jesus was 30 when he was teaching, so he did not have age. Jesus had no formal education, so he was not an educational expert, and very little was known about him. Yet Jesus shows up on the scene, and he basically says, I have the right to say all of this. Verse 28 reads like this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not like the teachers of the law. So here's the question. How come Jesus gets to do what he does? See, unlike me as a pastor or theologians or priests in our day or their day, Jesus doesn't quote anybody. Did you catch it? See, why? I've quoted five people in my sermon because they're all experts. Jesus comes along and quotes nobody. The Pharisees would quote their rabbi and the rabbi's rabbi and the rabbi's rabbi. Why? Because they wanted to know that people, like, that's how you do it. Jesus goes beyond it. I'd never thought about this till this week. In the Old Testament, when a prophet would come, he would say, King James English, thus saith the Lord. God says, so you need to listen to me. Jesus never says that. Jesus, 12 times in the Sermon on the Mount, shows up and says, I tell you. Or you've heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus shows up. He doesn't have the educational right, the age, or the experience. He doesn't quote experts. He doesn't even do what prophets are supposed to do. He just shows up and says, I'm telling you, this is the way it is. Now, you can only do that if you're actually someone greater, someone with more authority, a person beyond experience, education, and age. So to understand where we need to end this series is with Jesus. His right to speak, his be ability to go beyond, his right and understanding to influence. Where does the weight of Jesus' words come from? Why, let me put it this way, why does Jesus time and time again get to say, I have the last word, period? In three, in three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, actually in the whole book of Matthew, Jesus claims four things about himself. Savior, judge, Lord, and king. Jesus says, this is who I am. This is who I am. Only a few weeks after the Sermon on the Mount was given, there's a story found in Matthew 9. You may know it. Four men brought a paralyzed friend to Jesus. And Jesus had compassion and says it's, he saw their faith. But the striking thing in the passage is this. Jesus looks at the man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders in the moment got very angry and said in their hearts, not out loud, this man is blaspheming. This man is claiming to be God. 
This is wrong. Jesus, it says in the passage, knowing their heart, said, why do you have evil thoughts in your heart? He says, what is easier, for me to say this man's sins are forgiven or for me to say this guy can stand up, stand up and walk? So he says, so, so you know I have authority, I'm going to do both. Watch this. Son, stand up and walk. And the guy goes, what? Stand up and walk. What? Stand up. Stood up and everyone went, oh. he said, just so you know, I have authority over death. I have authority over sickness. I have authority over the devil. And oh, by the way, I have the authority to forgive sins. And it says, the crowd was amazed, was amazed because they had never seen authority like this. Jesus comes along. It's inferred in the Sermon on the Mount. It's explicit in Matthew and says, I have the right to forgive sins. Well, if you know your Old Testament, there is only one being in all of creation that has the authority to forgive sins. It's never delegated. It's God. And not only that, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount goes farther. He says, not only am I Savior, I'm also Lord. Do you remember back at the beginning of the series, back chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus said that you were going to be persecuted if you were a part of the kingdom? Blessed are you when people insult you. Do you remember that? Persecute you falsely, saying all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said, if you're part of the kingdom, people are going to get really angry at you and say wrong things against you because of God. No, no, because of me. Now here's what's so crazy about this. He said the prophets were persecuted in the Old Testament because they were faithful to the only true God. I'm going to send you out as my people and you're going to be persecuted for me. Well, again, if you have any sense of a Jewish worldview, he just claimed to have equality with God. If the prophets were persecuted for being faithful to God and we're being faithful to Jesus and being persecuted for him, immediately people would have gone, what did you just do? He says, oh, by the way, I'm Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. And then last week, remember what we saw? Jesus claimed to be judge. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on judgment day, Well, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, here's what's striking about this. Jesus presents himself as the one that all humanity will face and will give an account to. And he has the right to say, I knew you or I didn't. Jesus claims to be Savior, Lord, Judge, and King. Fourteen times in the book of Matthew, Jesus says that he has a unique, exclusive relationship with the Father. He is his Son. Jesus comes along and he says, I am ushering in the kingdom of God. Why does this matter this morning? Here's why it matters. Because if Jesus is who he claimed, if Jesus truly is Savior and Lord and Judge and King, then he has every right, and he does it very generously, not boastfully or angrily, but he has every right to walk into C4 Church and say to us, this is my view on adultery. The conversation is done. Divorce, Gender, sexuality, revenge, giving, fasting, praying, worrying, judging. This is the kingdom. This is who's in the kingdom. This is who's not in the kingdom. I have the authority to talk about heaven and hell. I, why? Because I actually my authority stems from me and no one else. 
See, Jesus breaks all the preaching rules we're taught in seminary. Every one of them. He doesn't end with a, let's all go. He stops and says, do you really want me? Do you really want me? I want you, he says, but do you want me? My authority stems from me because of who I am. See, if Jesus isn't these things, he has no right to speak over you. You should never put your head under Jesus. You should never listen to him. But if he is who he claims, oh yes, then we must listen to him because he is Lord. And because he's good and he's kind and he's actually showing us in the Sermon on the Mount, he is starting to paint the picture of what the new heavens and the new earth will be forever, forever, forever. Here's where we end the series. And let me just walk this through with you. Number one, it's this. What do we all do with Jesus? Like, what do, we, what do we do with him? For many of you, again, who join us week in and week out who are not Christians, though I'm not going to give a call today. I just want to ask you the question as you keep wrestling. Do you really believe that this guy who walked around 2,000 years ago is who he claimed? Because if he is, run to him because he's life and he'll give you hope. But if he's not, run away. What do you do with him? As a Christian, what do we do with Jesus? I find much of the time we actually think we might know better than him because he didn't live in 2015. Really? If he's Lord and Savior and Judge. No, no. He has the right to define all this for us. And by the way, he's good. You say, well, John, what's the whole point? Here it is. The kingdom of God is marked by the Sermon on the Mount. And we're praying as a church in our pre-service prayer meeting, one of our worship leaders cried out, don't relent. Keep coming for us. And here's what the Lord is offering this church. And it's not an offer exclusive to us. He is saying to us, the Sermon on the Mount is doable. The Sermon on the Mount is where health and holiness and beauty and love is. He is saying to us as a community, ready? This church can actually look like the Sermon on the Mount. You say, well, what's the application for the whole series? That this church would look like the Sermon on the Mount. By God's grace and by God's help, that God would, by His Spirit and by His Word and by community, do such an un unnatural thing in this church that this church actually functions like the Sermon on the Mount. That our desire would be, yes, we want our life built on a rock. Yes, we will let Jesus with authority speak about any issue in our life. And we will wrestle, but then we will submit and find life. It is when we would keep saying, we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you want to know what the application of the Sermon on the Mount is, here it is. That we would do what we have heard. See, I can't give you the, now go ahead and do this this week. <clears throat> because this series is now about, in the next five years of this church, what will we look like? See, maybe I'll end with this. Take courage, church. Because now we have heard what he wants of us. He's given the spirit to allow us to do it. And now let us ask Jesus to produce this in us. The Sermon on the Mount 
is what kingdom come actually is. Rock or sand? Eternity or non-eternity? Presence or no presence? Jesus says it's all available. It's all possible. It's all expected. Let's ask God to do this ongoing miracle in our church because that's the word we need, miracle. So stand with me, would you? Would you please if you could? And let's just pray in and over this. You online, wherever you are, would you stand too if you can, if it's possible? So Jesus... Here's our prayer. You're the head of this church. You really are. You own this church. And we have been praying for renewal and revival and awakening as a community. And we keep asking for it. That each person, every child, every teen, every young adult and adult would continually meet Jesus in a fresh, real way. We're asking Jesus, and it has not happened yet, that you would send your Holy Spirit for a season where the whole church is affected by the presence of God. And we are praying for awakening. I mean, we are praying, Lord, under promises you've given us that you would do a great move in our region we've never seen. But our prayer in this moment is this. Lord, would you honestly empower us to put your words into practice? I don't know what else to pray other than that. Like, I pray, Lord, that in my life, my family's life, and in my church family's life, that the Sermon on the Mount would actually mark our community in a way that is just unnatural. So we invite the love of God, the saving of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God into our community. And we, true, we do pray, Lord Jesus, may the kingdom of God come on earth in C4 as it is in heaven. We pray, O oh God, that the Sermon on the Mount would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, O oh Lord God, that you would give joy as we serve, and we pray that the kingdom of God would spill out like water, like water, living water, out of this church and start flooding into a region that does not even know or want the kingdom of God. Lord, we pray under the words of Jesus and the promises given to this church, do not relent. Make us Mold us like this. There is no higher request we can ask. Lord, poor in spirit, merciful, obedient, and in love. In the name of God the Father who loves us so deeply that he sent his Son. In the name of God the Son who loves us so deeply that he died and he prays for us. In the name of the Holy Spirit who allows us to know the Father and the Son. In the name of the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to actually live out the Sermon on in the name of the Holy Spirit, who is our deposit guaranteeing resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. Amen, amen, amen.